everyone. Thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. And today I'm talking with a returning champion, Matt Alt, <laughs> who has been in the series many times. Thanks again for joining, Matt. Well, thanks for having me. Usually it's Hiroko, uh, my wife and collaborator and I, but today it's just me. Yeah. Do you feel lonely? I think you can do it. I I do, but there's this big empty space. There's a Hiroko-sized space right here. Uh, she's she's with us in spirit. Yeah, good. <laughs> so just to give people a background, uh, you guys have been on multiple times. I, I had you on the program talking about your amazing book mm -hmm. um, about pop culture from Japan yeah, so and how it influenced the world, which yes. is called, remind me of the title? Pure Invention. And the subtitle is actually being changed for the upcoming paperback release, which is, this is the first time it's ever been mentioned publicly. The title is Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. Nice and very, very interesting. We had a great talk about that in the series. Uh, my favorite part was about the guy who made the mini Jeeps, the toy oh, Jeeps yes, out of the wasted, the wasted metal. Yes. So there's some great yes. takeaways from that talk. Go and find it, guys. Uh, I talked to Hiroko and you many times about your wonderful series from Folktales from Japan. The, I want to say attack. the attack series, right? Yes, Yokai attack, ninja attack. There's yeah. lots of attackers here in Japan. Yurei attack, the Japanese ghost survival guide. Yeah. So yeah, you know, Hiroko and I do a lot of work together in that pop cultural sphere. But I also, uh, in recent years, have been uh, contributing essays to The New Yorker and to The Japan Times on occasion and uh, uh, the BBC, uh, The Economist, uh, 1843. And so I've been kind of there's there's a there's a certain amount of overlap between our entertainment work and this new journalistic uh, work we're doing. Well, that's that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. And as I mentioned off screen before we started, I always see so many depth and layers in your articles that you you're talking about the Tokyo Olympics in one article. You're talking about how Japan seems resistant somewhat to QAnon conspiracies sure. in another article. But I really saw a lot of connections between the mm. two. Um, so I hope we can dive into yeah. that a little bit today. Yeah, I try. You know, I, I came to this sort of field a little bit late in my in my life and my career you know for a career journalist usually get into it right out of school right out of college or, or grad school or whatever and i only started doing this you know decades into hiroko and my main job of being localization specialist working with video game companies and other entertainment companies to bring their products to market uh and it translated you know translated into various languages so i try to, to kind of everything i do is sort of filtered through that fundamental pop cultural uh, career upbringing, if you want to call it. And that, that might be why, you know, you, you kind of, <laughs> the stuff I write is so weird compared to what, you know, quote unquote, real journalists are writing. No, but I think like you mentioned in your article with connections to Akira, the anime, and how it was kind of foretelling what actually yeah. has been happening with the Olympics. I think in many ways you are writing focused on anime and manga and pop culture and sure. video games. You, that is often the sphere of foretelling the future, right? The science fiction sure. genre sure. in a way. And so also, really I don't think you, you can, fantasy and reality have started to really overlap in a lot of ways. You know, the internet has become this sort of platform for translating fantasies into reality and the other way around. And so you see this bleed through and the situation with the Olympics, 
the real-life Olympics uh, unfolding in much the same way they did in this manga and anime form of the Olympics in 1989 with the movie uh, Akira, or Akira, as it's often pronounced, is is really strange. It's a strange coincidence. Um, but like you say, you know, we by dreaming, we make our realities. And so in a lot of ways, science fiction writers and fantasy writers and dra you know, dramatists of all stripes are the kind of architects of our modern lives and of the future. Yeah. Guardian, uh, a few big uh, media companies have picked up on this connection between Akira and the 2020 Olympics, which was foretold in his anime film in the 1980s. I mean, yes. it is amazing, the coincidences, right? Like yeah. in the film, him standing in front of not yet completed Olympic yes. Stadium and how that translated back into anti-Olympic protests mm -hmm. happening in Japan using some of the themes from the film, right? Yeah, so for those of for those who might not be familiar, uh, Akira is the name of a first. It was a manga series, and then later it was an anime film. Uh, the manga was penned by an extremely talented artist named uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, and he went on to direct the movie. And when that movie came out in 1989, um, it didn't really take off in the West until 90, 1990 or so. It kind of fundamentally transformed the way that Westerners saw illustrated entertainment. Um, this this thing this this like aimed at adult illustrated entertainment from japan was there was nothing to compete with it in the west and it told the story of this what was then far future tokyo remember this was made in like 1985 um and it was set in 2019 which at the time was this incredibly futuristic year um that we have now that we've now since passed but it was set in a, a 2019 that was a post-apocalyptic 2019 tokyo had been uh, obliterated in what seemed to be a nuclear explosion. It had rebuilt as the city Neo-Tokyo. And it was set on the eve of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, which at the time were a fantasy. Of course, in 1985 or even 1989, nobody knew the Olympics would be coming back to Japan in, in, in 2020. And uh, as you astutely point out, it's not a very happy Olympics in, in the manga and anime. Um, they're, they're building this Olympic stadium, but there's all sorts of graffiti painted on the sign saying, stop it, just stop it, cancel it. So it's obvious that the citizens of Neo-Tokyo are not particular fans of this. And it's the, the government isn't working very well. There's all sorts of corruption. Uh, there's a, the military is threatening a coup d'etat in Akira, um, in, the, in the fiction. Uh, and so there's all sorts of, there's, there's protests in the streets. And of course, there's a huge science fiction element to this too. But that kind of societal backdrop is eerily similar to what we're seeing going on with the Olympics today, which uh, we're on the eve of the 2020 Olympics. Um, and they're hugely unpopular. The citizenry does not want to see them happening because they're worried that the government response to them is not sufficient to stop the spread of uh, clusters of coronavirus infections. And uh, in an interesting twist of <clears throat> life imitating art, citizens have started using that very same sort of graffiti slogans from the anime and manga in their real life protests, which is, uh, you know, one of these cases that I was talking about earlier of kind of fantasy and reality bleeding into one another. Taking inspiration 
from a film which is yeah. 20 years old now more than oh yeah more unfortunately more, more 1989 <laughs> i wish that were 20 years ago I, it's catching up with me um but yeah. yeah this this play on uh bringing back exactly like imitating exactly the protest signs from the movie and yes. having those in front of the now 2020 Olympic Stadium, yes. the juxtaposition of you know fantasy and reality bringing Definitely. it together, that was amazing, powerful. Well, in, in fantasy, in the fantasy world of Akira, these psychic children are kind of uh, uh, responsible for causing all sorts of destruction in the city. And fortunately, we don't have that problem. But in real life, the situation is pretty multi-layered and, and complex. There's Tokyo and many other pre pictures are in the state of emergency that is expected not only to last through May 31st, but probably is going to be extended a little bit beyond that. And this state of emergency is much stricter than any of the ones that have happened before. You literally can't get alcohol in restaurants right now. They're really, they're putting up fences around uh, many stations in Tokyo to prevent people from drinking on the streets because they believe that uh, people engaging in drinking parties are one of the big uh, you know, spawning sites of clusters in, in Japan at the moment. Whether this is 100% true or whether this is scapegoating is open to uh, interpretation, but it is a fact that the uh, cases have been trending slightly downward over uh, the last couple of uh, days in Tokyo. But, you know, there's big problems with holding uh, the major, you know, international sporting event like the Olympics here. Not only are we in the middle of a big uh, state of emergency, only a third of medical professionals have yet been vaccinated. The vaccine used doses being thrown away and like all sorts of things that happen when you're kind of, you know, trying to change the tire on a, on a, on a car while it's still moving, uh, which is, you know, kind of strange because the Japan has had a year or more, they knew this would be happening, but for some reason, uh, it seems like a lot of pre-planning wasn't done. So now, that's in, the- In your really excellent uh, podcast with Japan by River Cruise last Friday, which was <laughs> great, guess, and, great uh, prefix to yes. what we're talking about today. Thank you, Bobby and Ollie. Yes, um, Bobby and Ollie. You were, you were also talking about how, remember back to when the Olympics was approved and Japan, Tokyo got the bid. <clears throat> yeah, and there yeah. was a lot of protests then. And ever since then, every summer, we've had the hottest summer on record every summer since then. And people are saying, do we really want to have the Olympics in the hottest time? Well, this is, Tokyo, th that's exactly right? right. Like everybody was saying, so the, the Ishihara Shintaro, the uh, Trump-esque uh, governor of Tokyo uh, in, the, in the aughts, um, was the kind of main driving force behind bringing the Olympics to Tokyo. And uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, it was around 2011 or so, I think. It was kind of a post-Fukushima, um, a sort of like, you know, let's let's revitalize ourselves uh, sort of effort, I believe, although the, it had started before that. And then Japan lost out to Rio, um, uh, although you'll remember a, a key Japan moment from the Rio Olympics was uh, Prime Minister Abe 
rising out of a green pipe dressed like Super Mario during the closing ceremonies, which like, you know, caused another, quite a... another instance of pop yeah. culture and the fantasy and the real life coming together exactly. in Japan, and right? Japan is sort of like a, 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 a hothouse for that sort of thing happening. Like, it's tough to imagine Biden like popping out of a cake dressed like even like Santa Claus or something like that. You just don't see that kind of behavior in the West. And you could tell that Abe was quite unfortunate comfortable with this cosplaying. But, you know, the, it was received very positively by the world, I think, because Japan is seen as this forge of fantasies. But back in real life, Japanese citizens were like, oh, my God, why on earth? This is already a crowded city. You know, we aren't desperate to, like, come back on the world stage like we were in 1964, you know, declaring that we're back from, you know, the, we're no longer the enemy of the world. We're the friend of the world. Um, and as you so astutely pointed out, as anybody who has spent any amount of time in, in Japan, Japan, not just Tokyo, but Japan in the middle of the summer, it's muggy, it's sweaty, it's nasty. Like it, it kids pass out all the time, you know, doing sports in school. It's, it's dangerous. Like, yes. It's, it's just not, is it really? And, and the timing too, like the timing, they wanted to run the marathon through the main city streets. You know, it's like the hottest oh, yeah. time of the day. Well, I avoid going out, you know, like I, I have this huge straw hat. I never would have been seen caught dead in this thing as a teenager. But like I wear this like Wilford Brimley style like straw hat when I'm going out in the street. It's it's bad. It's like it's literally like you will roast in the sun at the peak of a Japanese summer, right? So it's A, it's kind of crazy to imagine putting athletes through that, but at least they were like highly trained professionals. The the spectators, you know, it, it's it's just a wild time. So one of the one of the ideas that uh um you know proponents of canceling or moving the Olympics have said is why don't we just hold it in October? You know, which makes a lot more sense from a both from a weather perspective and also probably by October, a much larger, hopefully a much larger chunk of the population will be vaccinated. But for whatever reason, the IOC is dead against doing that. Um, and it really is, I think, key to mention it's the IOC who is uh, the one who is the final arbiter of whether the Olympics go on or not. Of course, Japan is a sovereign nation and could say, you know what, we're not doing this, goodbye. But, but let's talk a little bit about the irony there because the IOC director was supposed to come to Japan, canceled the trip because it's in the state of emergency now in Japan. Yes. He doesn't think it's safe, which is quite ironic. You're still going ahead with sending athletes and a lot of supporters over. Now let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, you actually mentioned that it was an article by Takara Jimasha Shah? Takara Jimasha, yeah. That kind of inspired the <clears throat> article that you ended up writing for a New Yorker talking about this issue a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So Takara Jimasha is a publisher um, here in Japan, and they tend to support kind of progressive causes. And they also have a history of taking out large two-page spreads in, in multiple newspapers at the same time to promote various, you know, social causes or to comment on them. Uh, for instance, and and a lot of times, most of the time, their style is to take an old photo from World War II and superimpose a, you know, some kind of up to the moment commentary on it. Right after 2011, they sparked a lot of controversy by taking out a two page ad that featured Douglas MacArthur descending from the C-47 transport plane that brought him to the begin the occupation of Japan. 
and its tagline was, you know, we've reinvented ourselves before. We can do it again. I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, speaking of, you know, how horrible the the 311 Tohoku earthquake and meltdowns were saying, you know, we have the power to reinvent ourselves. Then, uh, like early this year, they ran uh, a similar two page spread of two. It was a photograph taken immediate post-war of Japanese school children, like elementary school children, cleaning up their classroom. And the tagline was, you know, we know what to do without being told. You know, we can do this. You know, remember, and, and it was about etiquette, you know, like covering your mouth when you sneeze and, you know, wearing masks and, and social distancing and stuff. And so it was a very kind of supportive type of of commentary. It was saying, hey, you know, let's all pitch in together. And, you know, we can defeat this virus kind of thing, right? Then two weeks ago, they took out, they dropped this, this another one and it hit like a bomb. And it was an image of the, a black and white image from during World War II of Japanese school children being drilled with spears in those desperate last days of the war when Japan knew it was losing and was just literally throwing its young people into the meat grinder because there was, I mean, it was just an insane time in Japanese history. And superimposed on top of that is a big red coronavirus. So taken as a whole, it, it evokes both the, the Japanese Hinomaru, rising sun flag, and also all of this militarism and the virus. And the tagline is no vaccines, no medicine. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, if we don't do something, politics is going to kill us. Yeah, I have I have the uh, screenshot of your tweet and and the tagline, no vaccines, no medicine. Do you expect us to fight with bamboo spears? Yes. If things keep up like this, we'll be killed by politics. And I think this ties in really closely to what you're talking about, conspiracy theories mm -hmm. and how people under 40 in Japan are le much more critical and skeptical of the mass media mm -hmm. and the number of people reading newspapers has gone down 10 oh, million since TV... the 2000s that's amazing oh yeah no there's there's been a great migration away from traditional news sources and uh, from a certain perspective the mass media has nobody but themselves to blame because they had such huge subscription numbers uh, continuing well into the 21st century, even until now, like I, I believe Japanese newspapers enjoy some of the highest subscription rates in the world. They haven't had to innovate online in the same way that Western media outlets have. Uh, even now, when you go online, you'll see most of the articles are behind paywalls. Um, there isn't a lot of simultaneous streaming of news online. You're expected to get the newspaper. Young people aren't doing that because either it's just a pain or they're not habituated to it or they feel it's slow or they don't trust it. And there's been a big migration onto online uh, sources such as Nico Nico Doga, YouTube, that are a lot less regulated and a lot less uh, – they're kind of a wild west for the information wars, so to speak. And so just as in the West – you're seeing increasing numbers of people, perhaps not as many as the West, but increasing numbers of young people getting their information from sort of suspect sources, such as streamers, uh, vloggers, look at us, like us, uh, streaming content online, rather than tuning into the nightly news or reading the daily newspaper. Now, some interesting points you made from that article were about how there is no 24-7 news cycle in Japan. And there is a fairness doctrine 
uh, ethics are kind of upheld still in print. And uh, Japanese culture avoids conflicts, rarely talks politics or re or religion, really, right? Yes. And uh, half the voters say they don't have political affiliation. So yes. these are all really interesting points about how um, Japan has resisted uh, conspiracy theories on the mass scale, such as QAnon. Um, and I think that really connects to kind of a lot of issues with the Tokyo Olympics as well, right? It's just, well, it's changing the yeah. way people get information. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the America in America, fairness doctrine and a lot of other restrictions on broadcast content were struck down during the Reagan era um, in response to lobbying from all sorts of uh, parties ranging from toy companies uh, who wanted to be able to advertise toys during their 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 cartoons to all sorts of political operatives who wanted the, the freedom to be able to say more incendiary things on the air. And those striking down of the fairness doctrine in the in, in the early 80s resulted in the rise uh, very shortly thereafter of talk radio, political talk radio, which sort of laid the groundwork for the rise of partisan polarized television news and all sorts of other outlets uh, that we see in America today. But like, as you said, uh, Japan doesn't have a 24 seven news cycle, you know, NHK comes on, you know, it's seven o'clock to eight o'clock. And, you know, of course there are news bulletins and things like that during the day and other channels have their news uh, shows, but they tend to be shows. They're not a 24 seven cycle with those chirons cycling on the bottom of the screen and just uh, this voracious hunger for any kind of scoop, no matter how small. Uh, and that has, and it's, it's much more difficult because of uh, a Japanese, the equivalent of a fairness doctrine. It's not called a fairness doctrine, but there is a semi-equivalent law here that requires balance in portraying uh, news and especially political issues. So that makes it very difficult to kind of launder fringe theories into the mainstream. In America, you know, especially when you have a sort of memeing president uh, like Donald Trump in office, him just saying something on Twitter is news in and of itself. And so all of a sudden some, you know, wacky off the cuff thing, or maybe it isn't off the cuff, suddenly gets picked up by the mainstream media, amplified, and now it's news. Now it, now people who are living a kind of fact-based reality are on the defensive because it's so tough to disprove a lot of these things. That's why the conspiracy theories entrench themselves. So that being said, Japan is no stranger to conspiracy theories. Uh, not at all. Um, there's been many conspiratorial groups, such as the Alm Supreme Truth, who had very, very uh, sort of eerily similar to QAnon in many ways beliefs that led them to bomb the subway system in, in 1995. Um, and there's been many cases of conspiracy theories swirling around vaccines, around ethnic groups, uh, all sorts of things. So Japan is not immune, but its media ecosystem is very different from that of America and the West. And that has kind of immunized it so far against the rise of something like QAnon. But I don't know that we can say that there's not going to be a pushback against vaccines yet. You know, I think the fact that vaccine vaccinations haven't really taken off has hidden the fact that there's probably people out there who are opposed to them and who will probably, you know, who might, there might I don't know. We don't know. Be enough of them out there to forestall herd immunity. 
So this is there's a lot of big unanswered questions out there right now. Um, yeah. It is it is like a relatively unknown. Uh, we just don't have vaccine rollout yet. No, it's no, really it's terrible. Slow, you know. Well, and then this kind of feeds into. Well, let me mention first that one of the magazines you you talk about, Moo Magazine. Um, yes. The editor is really interesting. You say he wants to install a kind of conspiracy literacy for his readers <clears throat> that he finds the QAnon conspiracies to be too naive for his audience. And I thought that was such an interesting comment. I did too. And I'm really glad you brought it up because when I wrote that piece, that op-ed piece for the New York Times, it wasn't clear what you know action or stance uh, Mr. Mikami would take after that. And he he swore up and down that he wouldn't publish a special on QAnon. And then right around that time, he said he would. And I read that special. It came out a couple of weeks after my op-ed was. And it was an absolutely 100% credulous, written by a QAnon supporter, rundown of what had happened in the States. It was actually kind of turned my stomach in a lot of places, you know, because they're just parroting the QAnon line about Black Lives Matter, about people who are on one side or the other, the political spectrum. It, it was just taking everything at face value. It was extraordinarily naive. And it made me realize that I think Mr. Mikami was basically pulling a PR move. That's um, a shame. I, I, it I, is a shame. I got hope from that that comment. Me too. I was like, really? That would be great. Because I was yeah. I had high hopes. I had high hopes. But you know, it's funny when I when I expressed my when I expressed my disappointment to several people, they're like, it's Moo magazine. What were you expecting? You know, and it's true. Moo magazine is the kind of place normally you turn for like the up to date information about like, you know, cattle mutilations or like UFO abductions. Yeah. It's not exactly, you know, if that's your first line of of news, you're probably <laughs> pretty deeply embedded in a fringe. Yeah. So but you, um, also, it is a shame. you also mentioned about a knee channel, so two channel and then four channel. And uh, I, I didn't, I don't follow those. But sure, sure, sure. How uh, they're very misogynistic and racist, and the typical kind of right wing troll. And the QAnon has actually been changed to JAnon for followers of QAnon. That well, I, this is all people, stuff I never People in known. Japan, observers in Japan, have given JAnon the name JAnon to as a sort of umbrella term for a variety of QAnon esque beliefs and behavior ranging from COVID deniers uh, all the way up to people who do believe like lizard people have, you know, taken over the government and are using, you know, body duplicates to, to you know, run some sort of deep state conspiracy. So there isn't an actual JNN movement in Japan. It is an umbrella term used mainly by outsiders. People on the inside will deny, you know, that they're involved in anything like this. Um, that's one of the interesting things about QAnon is that QAnoners tend to embrace it. Um, it's not a dirty word to them. That's their, you know, their their kind of flag, their banner that they fly under. But uh, QAnon, and quite literally, as we saw in January sixth. Yes. They were flying QAnon flags, right? Yes, literally, literally. And QAnon originally, uh, it originated on a anonymous online bulletin board system called 4chan in the political forums of a group of a, of a board called 4chan, which you, I'm sure you probably haven't used, but you've heard of. And 4chan is a really interesting, uh, uh, like 
mover of, of online culture. It's, it was founded in 2003 as a English language version of a Japanese website called Futaba Channel, which itself was a sort of image-based version of a very popular Japanese site called Two Channel. And these websites all shared something in common, which is you didn't have to register. You could just go on and, and post whatever you wanted, whatever kind of imagery, whatever kind of text, and there would be no regulation of it. Um, it, it wouldn't be like Facebook. It wouldn't be like, you know, America Online, which was which was big at the, in the 1990s. I remember uh, at the time that Knee Channel, Two Channel, actually broke some, cons not cons like whistleblower type. Uh, yes which actually were true. So yes, um, all, so yeah. it did have some good points, but yeah, yes, it was yes. also conspiracy theories, right? No, these, these sites, two channel, Taba channel, four channel, they all started with these utopian ideals that by giving a voice to the voiceless, that they could speak truth to power and uh, a kind of serve as a sort of safety valve in a world that was becoming increasingly regulated and observed and tracked. And in fact, uh, 4chan's founder, Chris Poole, uh, emerged in the aughts as a sort of foil to Mark Zuckerberg, who was, you know, promoting social media as a place where you would show your real face and it would be an online version of your real life. And well, if you don't have anything to hide, why don't you want to show your face? Well, now we know there's lots of reasons why you don't want to be tracked by Facebook and all sorts of these companies. And it's seeming like Chris Poole's uh, you know, desire to, as he put it, give people a place to be wrong, uh, has more, is more relevant now than, than, than ever. But you know, what Chris and, and a lot of these founders of these early online anonymous boards was what they didn't realize that the vocal minority would come to dominate the tone of the site. When 4chan was founded, it was literally a clearinghouse for fans of anime. It was that was what it was created for. All of the uh, original forums on there had to deal with kawaii culture, Japanese culture, anime, manga, cosplay. Um, and it was it, it had that kind of utopian ideal of a, a sort of bridge between cultures. Um, but in this anonymous world where people are sort of rewarded for saying more extreme things, it became this sort of Darwinian competition for users to one-up each other with increasingly uh, absurdist and outrageous forms of expression. And that fueled 4chan's evolution from this kind of geek platform into a political platform where all sorts of really sexist, misogynistic, homophobic, nationalistic, uh, uh, nativist rhetoric was rewarded and amplified, often by political operatives outside. Famously, Steve Bannon used 4chan as a recruiting ground to get uh, young people onboarded onto the Trump campaign, and it worked. So, you know, you have this kind of background going on in Japan and America, where you have these sort of uh, groups that were started with, you know, by idealistic young men that turned into real cesspools <laughs> of, of disinformation and hate. Um, and uh, that fueled what we saw, that they fueled the rise of QAnon, and they also formed a sort of symbiotic relationship with the American mass media, who would be turning to them for scoops and things like that. And uh, various interested parties realized they could float things on 4chan, get them turned into memes, 
and then kind of inject them into the mainstream discourse, which is why you started to see during the 2016 campaign all of these bizarre mashups of like Donald Trump and anime characters. I mean, it was just something I never would have imagined happening. And it was purely driven by 4chan and that kind of memification of American pop culture and mainstream culture. Wow. It's, yeah. it's so interesting. Uh, feeding back a little bit to how protests and stuff are happening, but very small scale in Japan. Um, but I think an, something that you wrote in that conspiracy theory article, as well as the Olympic article, was how the basic distrust in polit politicians and how the basic idea of the Japanese public is they don't think politicians care about them. Yeah. And this is kind of, well, yes, very much being played out in the push forward into the Olympics, despite all of these huge warning signs that maybe this is not the best time to have a major event in Tokyo, right? It's not a good look. Uh, it's not a good look for the government. It's not a good look for the IOC. Um, it, it does feel like a commercial endeavor is being, and that's what the Olympics are. You know, I know the IOC is, is, and the head of the IOC is always talking about how this is for the athletes. And it is, uh, you know, I want these people who've dedicated their lives to sport to have their moment to shine too, but it's a commercial endeavor. The IOC makes its money from commercials on TV. That's literally why it, it exists. Um, and the, the image of this being foisted on a nation that doesn't want it is, I think, only growing stronger. I, I don't think that that image is lessening. And it's, it could, there could be serious blowback, I think, both for the, like, in terms of the IOC being able to convince other cities that they want to do this. You know, or right now, I think, you know, this is my analysis, but I think what we're seeing right now is a game of chicken. I think the Japanese government would cancel if they could. But the contract with the Olympics states that only the IOC can terminate or make the decision to cancel. If they cancel, that in turn triggers all sorts of insurance payouts. So Japan, a lot of its costs would be covered um, that would be a big plus. However, if Japan pulls out unilaterally, which it can, of course, as a sovereign state, you know, what are the, what's the IOC going to invade if they if, if Japan says no? But they will be saddled with huge bills for nothing, nothing. And one of the big criticisms of the Olympics in Japan was that it's way more expensive than everybody. And everybody knew that it would be way more expensive. Initially, it was projected to be seven point five uh, billion. Now it's at 15. Um, it's double the costs that were originally projected. And as you know, Japan has been suffering a recession for basically the last 30 years. So where's all this money coming from? It's coming from taxpayer money, of yeah. course. And then another example of why maybe the public distrusts the leaders or the policymakers uh, happened, you were talking about in the podcast with Japan by River Cruise about in Kagoshima at the torch event. Running happened. of the torch. So the uh, they've been holding a variety of test events to, you know, kind of prove that the Olympics are safe. And in their defense, the actual sporting events they've held, um, I, I think they've done a series of test events, have not so far resulted in any infections or anything. But last month, uh, when they were running the torch, 
which is an actual, this wasn't a test. This is an actual official. As we know, you run the torch to the, you know, to, to light the sacred flame. During the leg being run in Kagoshima, in Kyushu, six officials came down with COVID-19. And the, the really cruel irony of this is that they were the ones holding up the signs that said, please maintain social distancing amid the crowd. And it's just, I mean, it's really, really, I mean, it's terrible stuff, but it's also really ironic and it's also really telling because one of the big frustration or friction points here between the IOC and the government and the Japanese people is that they keep saying, well, all of the athletes are going to be vaccinated. Their entourages are going to be vaccinated. And critics keep saying, without hearing an answer, well, what about the citizens? What about the thousands of volunteers who are going to be mixing in there? Because as if you've been following the news, Japanese people have been clustering and, and getting infected without foreigners being in the country just by being together. That's what the whole point of the state of emergency is, to get people to split apart. So to date, politicians and the IOC have said absolutely nothing about how they plan to prevent the spread of COVID-19 among spectators or among uh, volunteers who are going to be participating in this. There's so far been nothing about that. Hopefully then, there's, there is some plan, but yeah. we haven't heard it. No, and then add to that the fact that cities like Osaka are having huge spikes in cases right now. Yes. They don't have enough hospital beds. No. They don't have enough hospital staff, nursing staff or doctors. And the IOC is asking for doctors and nurses to volunteer yes. for the Olympics. But this is a horrible thing to ask for right now while some people are being refused at the hospital and dying at home. Because Again, they lack staff, right? A really bad look. It's just a bad look uh, for everybody involved. And yeah, Osaka is in dire straits. Um, at the, in the beginning of this month, there were literally more people dying from COVID-19 as a percentage of population than in India, which is currently being highlighted as the global hotspot. Um, of course, the numbers, the, the, the actual numbers are lower because the population is lower. But as a percentage of population, it's higher. And uh, there was just an article the other day in the Japanese uh, news about how most, many if not most COVID sufferers are having to go through it at home. There, there aren't, they aren't being admitted to beds. Uh, they aren't being admitted to treatment. And it's, it's very difficult to get into hospitals because part of this is logistical. Only certain Japanese hospitals are equipped to handle COVID-19 patients. As you know, you have to have isolation, a lot of you know, uh, uh, tactics and tricks and techniques have to be used on people who are infectious. And so while Japan has a huge number of hospitals and a huge number of doctors, there's only a limited number that can deal with this. And so that's one of the problems. And uh, it's a big problem. I, I don't, it, it's one again, that the government keeps saying everything's gonna be okay. And but it, it hasn't way, why? changed from the very beginning of the outbreak. If I no. think back to when we first started becoming aware of coronavirus and maybe March of last year, this was an immediate problem around Japan, the lack of hospital beds, because yes. there's only certain number, very limited number for infectious cases. There was, if you could get in, your chance of survival very high, but your chance of getting in are being admitted to the hospital during this pandemic from the very beginning has been very difficult to access. Oh, yeah. Right. 
And unspoken in all of this is when somebody dies at home and if they die in an isolated fashion and they're not found, which is increasingly common in Japan where so many households consist of just one person uh, in this kind of hyper-age society, they don't get counted as corona deaths. Um, and so the numbers are, we know the numbers are, are low that are being reported. They always have been. They've always been more of an indication than an actual hard figure. But when you start seeing these stories of how many people are being forced to uh, endure or maybe not endure, we don't know what the what the final fates of a lot of these people are outside of the hospital system. It, it really drives home how uh, on if we're not past the tipping point, we're very close to it in a lot of major municipalities in Japan. So again, this is a really weird time to be holding an event in which you are inviting huge numbers of people from abroad. I would be nervous coming into Japan, uh, even vaccinated, because as we know, the vaccines are not foolproof armor against the, the, the virus. They just kind of uh, lessen the effects if you happen to get caught. They, they greatly reduce the chance you'll, you'll get it, but they don't prevent it. So you're really going into the maw of the beast sort of as a vaccinated person going into a Japan that is not vaccinated. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a very good argument for Japan is is because the cases are so high now. We're we're kind of a more likely place to have a Tokyo variant. You oh, know? sure. I mean, yeah, it, it's entirely possible. And even vaccinated people might not have immunity to that and take well, it back around the world I yeah mean, you don't this is just not a good time to be doing this like by by any logical standard this is not a good time to be doing this and this gets back to what i'm saying which is i i honestly believe you know this is a game of chicken i i think that if the government had a way out to to, to they would take it um i know that there's been a lot of talk that suga wants to see this as a triumphant return but there's no way that within two months any major swath of the population is going to be vaccinated. There's a chance that a good chunk of elderly people will be, but most municipalities are saying that they won't begin vaccination to people under 65 until all of the 65s are done. And that's not going to be done until at least the end of July and probably more likely the end of August. So no matter how you look at this, the vast majority of Japanese and us non-Japanese who are here are under or under 65 are not going to be vaccinated. And I don't say this to be apocalyptic, you know, or to, to inspire panic. It's just the situation. Yeah. And it's a fact. And so I, I know, and I am sure you know as well, a lot of people going home to get vaccinated. Yes. And coming back. And I would like to, I know all the military bases have vaccinated all the Americans on base and local staff, it would be really nice if the embassies offered it to all American residents, at yes. least. And then, you know, I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, privilege, which it is, but then it would help with herd immunity if at least there's some vaccinations going on. But I don't know if Japan would approve that. I don't well, know. Well, the, the argument that's being made is as American taxpayers, we should be, you know, we should we should get vaccines that our taxes paid for. I pay my taxes in America. I, you know, I do. But I, I understand what they're doing as well. You know, it, it's a it's a bad look for America to be saying, hey, here's vaccines just for you guys, not for the rest of the <laughs> suffering population. It doesn't look good. And, you know, optics are important. They yeah. really are. Um, but it, it really, also, really are. doesn't it remind you of like after 311, the American embassy saying, if you can get out of Japan, do it. You know, I mean, this this often yes. happens for expats around the world. But they didn't actually fly us out. 
you know, France actually chartered planes to fly people out of uh, Japan. America did not quite get to that point. I understand that plans were drawn up, but they weren't used because as it turned out, Tokyo was not nearly in the danger, again, that the mass media uh, was kind of making it sound like we were in. Although it's tough to blame them because there was so little useful information coming out of those uh, press conferences at the time. And so now we're kind of... Another thing from that disaster is that we weren't being told a lot of information about the no. radiation and stuff until months later. Yes. And a lot of people feel the same kind of cynicism about is coronavirus really at the levels that we're being told or are things being keeping hidden? Are we going to find out later? I mean, these these questions are kind of amongst the public right now. And there has been a history of people not being able to trust mass media or what the politicians say so much. And part of that is to control panic, right? And to keep things uh, under control and efficiently running, which is kind of a Japanese way, right? I want, you know, it's, I want to unpack a little bit about the kind of relationship between Japan and its elected officials. And, you know, one of the really interesting things here is that there is an extremely low level of trust towards politicians. This has been shown again and again in surveys. But yet the the discourse has not gotten anywhere nearly as polarized as it is in the States. And it's interesting when I interact or before all of this, when I used to interact with my Japanese friends, you'd often have people on opposite spectrums, the political spectrum, uh, engaging in, in banter, you know, maybe even a little argument, but never to the kind of uh, apocalyptic levels that you see among, you know, if somebody suddenly comes out as a Trump supporter in a room full of Biden you know, fans or the vice versa. Um, there isn't anywhere near as much identity politics here in Japan. Japanese people see themselves as all suffering equally under horrific, horrifically inefficient and disinterested politicians. And to be honest, the politicians don't do much to change that image. They're often incredibly out of touch, you know, as we saw with the whole brouhaha uh, with the sexist uh, Olympic commissioner, uh, Mori, wasn't that his name? A couple months back. And you just see these kind of just tone deaf, tone deaf uh, comments again and again from politicians. They're just because so many of them come from family political dynasties. There isn't a lot of that, you know, working your way up from the streets and, you know, you became a politician here. Uh, just large numbers of deeply connected, you know, Abe is from a political family. His grandfather was the prime minister. And you see this again and again and again, you know, the Koizumi dynasty, uh, it, it's just kind of part and parcel in a way, you know, in America, we, we, we have that as well, the Bushes, the Clintons, you know, but I, I think it's much, those dynasties are shorter, smaller than they are in Japan, where they're kind of interwoven into the fabric of uh, politics and society. And this is where you should actually get a real political scientist on the show to talk about this, you know, uh, and not me, uh, somebody who's watched a lot of Akira and <laughs> written about the Olympic but it's, situation. But it's but. really interesting because you pick up on things from the pop culture, from reading the newspapers, from doing translation. You started in the public sector. I think you, you have a very interesting take on these things. Um, definitely would love to talk to a political scientist as well. So please introduce. Yes, recommend some. Yes, like <laughs> yeah, Tobias recommend. Harris. Like he just wrote that great book, The Iconoclast, about uh, Shinzo Abe. And he'd be great to have on here. You, you should definitely oh, talk yeah. to him. I'll, I'll reach out. Put me in touch. 
Um, so one of the big questions I wanted to ask you after reading these two articles is, are we seeing a shift in Japan are, as we have uh, less readership of real journalistic newspapers and more readership of online, less vetted, maybe less ethical news? Are we seeing a shift, especially now with coronavirus and the protests and unease about the Olympics? After this year, are we going to see a big shift, you think, in perception? Well, there's definitely a shift going on. I mean, I think it mirrors shifts around the world and how young people everywhere are turning increasingly, you know, their, their lives are increasingly on. All of our lives are increasingly online. We spend huge amounts of time on social media, you know, clicking, refreshing, uh, you know, and, and even if you're not deliberately seeking out your news on Facebook, chances are you're seeing it being reposted and retweeted and things like that. So there's been a fundamental shift in humanity, the way we live our lives. Um, you know, the impact of the Internet on not just discourse, but literally the way we live our lives is, is real and profound. And it's only accelerated in the post-pandemic era because it's literally become our only window into the world in a lot of ways. You know, you can't really eat out anymore. You can't really go to movies anymore, but you can stream them on your, you know, you can have drink ups on Zoom. You know, you can have, you know, watch things streaming. So when you, I think humans don't know how to live like this yet. We're still struggling with how we uh, live in a world where we're increasingly connected and isolated at the same time. It's scary. It's scary, and it's probably one of the biggest shifts that humanity has experienced in in recent generations, uh, in, in its own way, bigger than wars or famines or or even pandemics, uh, because it's a new way of interacting. And uh, Japan is struggling with that. Japan actually laid a lot of the groundwork for it. That's the interesting thing. Like a lot of these technologies that we take for granted, uh, immersive entertainment scapes ranging from the Walkman to virtual reality, uh, those tools were kind of perfected here in Japan. And I think, you know, Japan is experiencing a big shift in the way that it's, you know, young people and, and the subsequent generations are going to be, you know, living and interacting. But so too, are they actually kind of leading the way, lighting the way for us? I've heard some arguments online about, uh, they foresee a big change in terms of art and culture and that kind of protest, uh, that kind of way to express unrest. So because we know now there's a lot more depression in Japan, um, there's a lot of people feeling the gap, the economic gap, of finding it harder to get by. It, people are struggling in Japan right now and feeling the Olympics being pushed on them sure, sure. is added stress and pressure. And some people in the States are talking about this too, how these two years, they expect to see a real interesting change in terms of pop culture, music, art, and that kind of expression. And someone who has studied pop culture for many years in Japan, do you expect this too from Japan? Well, we we've, we live in a remix culture right now. 
you know, I've often been discussing this, like how you can't really tell the difference between the decades anymore. Like, you know, the 50s, you have this image in your head of what the 50s are, the 60s, the 70s. Oh, bell bottoms. You know what I mean? That's really changed because pop culture is, is entirely online right now. And we're kind of marking time in terms of memes and recycled entertainment that's being reused or commented on in various ways. Japan was kind of ahead of the curve on this too, because they had such a thriving fan culture that was using mainstream manga and anime as the medium for their own expressions, coming up with all sorts of genres like boys love and yaoi and, and this kind of fan uh, cultures, cosplay, uh, that really thrived here first before taking off abroad. And I also think it's kind of key to point out something you just said, which is that, you know, levels of depression are rising and things like that. Are they? Or is it just more visible now because everybody has a voice? Because you sometimes hear these really kind of uneducated sorts of takes like, why are there so many gay people out there right now? Why are there so many transgender people forcing their thing down my throat? And it's like, no, these people, just they were hidden. They did not have a voice before. Now you're being forced to confront the fact that there's more diversity out there. Uh, whether it's neurodiversity, whether it's gender diversity, whether it's the spectrum of happiness, you know, what is the average person's level of satisfaction and happiness? You know, in, in previous eras when we didn't, we weren't all interconnected like this, I think it was easier to kind of hide the fact of how many people were dissatisfied or angry with the status quo. Now they do have a voice. It's kind of uncontrolled. We're living in this wild west, and that's why things are so tumultuous, tumultuous and turbulent and scary. And sometimes it bubbles over into honest-to-God dangerous uh, expressions, such as what we saw on the Capitol steps on January 6th, um, or manifestations of strange, you know, cyber cults and things as we see with QAnon. But you know, on the whole, I think there's no going back, and we wouldn't want to go back even if we could. Um, would you want to be less connected to people? You know. I mean, it's great. We have the ability to express ourselves. And so if you are depressed, if you are an outsider, you can kind of find your tribe more easily. Uh, that's the that's the positive side of all this uh, interconnectivity that we're experiencing. And yeah, it's going to absolutely transform the way that we express ourselves creatively in the future. It already is. Yeah. I, I envision a more ideal path forward. So this is something I always, it's a little game I always play, right? When you're seeking sustainability, you're always looking at things which are imperfect and you're thinking, if I could change that to a perfectly sustainable model right now, what would I do? Um, so if the Olympics do go ahead, what are things the Japanese government could do right now to make it a little bit smoother? One, one thing that I, I would say, which has really made me feel much more supported by my country I've left, America, is hearing from the U.S. government that they're thinking about um, easing up on student loans and helping people get health care and the support checks to Americans, even yeah. living abroad, was really helpful. Yeah. And the Japanese government has not given new subsidy checks to Japanese citizens this year. So that would, if I made one suggestion, it would be to spend some money supporting, especially single mothers who I know are yes. particularly struggling right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, people who have lost their jobs, a lot of women who have lost jobs because they're temporary employees. So sending out stimulus checks for people really struggling to get by right now, 
that would be my one way better for forward if we're going to go ahead. Can you think of anything? Like well, that? I, you know, on the specifically on the Olympics, like you know, not having spectators, doing this in as much of a hermetically sealed bubble as you can, and vaccinating every Japanese person who is involved with them. You know, even though I want to get vaccinated as quickly as possible, you know, and I don't think anybody should be prioritized just for a sporting event. If advanced vaccinating four or five thousand people who are going to be supporters at this event. And volunteers. Volunteers, that's what I mean. Uh, volunteers at this event. If that stops clusters, if, if, if people, if that keeps people healthy, do it. Yeah. Do it. I'm all for it because I, like a lot of people, I'm just literally afraid for my health. Yeah. I'm afraid that if a cluster happens, it's going to spread out of control. You know, it's it's a it's a very real fear. This is not just some simple I hate sports kind of thing I, or I hate fun, yeah. um, which is how I think a lot of critics of the critics are portraying it. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case. I, I think there's very real if they can address those medical concerns, then they're going to take a big step toward making this a lot more palatable to a lot of people. Yeah. I, I agree. If people who have to be at the event because they're staff or because they're <clears> volunteers <throat> or especially if they're medical staff, yes, please yeah. make sure they are vaccinated and as protected as possible. If this has to go ahead, no matter what, right? Well, in my head, sustainability is safety. Yeah. It's the ability to live in a safe, healthy way. So right now we're we're missing the safe and the health from this. It's it's you know it, I I hope that they start looking at this in a more sustainable way. Yeah, for sure. And this this Olympics actually was supposed to be the most sustainable of all Olympics ever, and they were trying to balance the needs of the environment with the needs of society and making a profit. You know, with all the new people coming in and using tourism as a way for the Olympics. So in so many ways, the sustainable ideal for the Olympics has definitely fallen by the wayside. But, but, but if it has to go ahead, there are certain things that I hope to see happen in terms of vaccinating people, having subsidies for the community so that they feel more support for some big event, which is using up so much taxpayer money, right? So let's think about if it really has to go forward, what are steps that can be taken to make it more sustainable? better balanced, right? Agreed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt. It's a, we got two more minutes. Anything we didn't touch on? Wow, two more minutes to fill. You know, it's funny, we've talked for an hour and now I'm like, I'm daunted by the prospect of filling up just two more minutes. It's funny how that works, <laughs> isn't sure it? I'm we can do it. Yes, um, we can do you it. You mentioned in the podcast, Japan by River Cruise, you talked about uh, hyper-aging society. We haven't talked that's, about that at all. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's what Japan is. Japan, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, it was assumed that the overpopulation would be the biggest threat to human civilization, you know, beyond war and pandemic and things like that. Um, and it's turned out that's not the case. Uh, overpopulation that when a, a certainly in a, in a sort of economic downturn, an advanced society tends to have far fewer children. Um, and that actually is, uh, it, it's, it, it, Japan was a leader, so to speak, in this societal issue. It's had a decline. There have been articles, if you go back through newspaper archives, you can see as way back as the early 80s, Japanese politicians and, and pundits talking about how this is the biggest problem facing Japan. And for a long time, it was seen as only Japan. 
But now we are starting to see a spate of articles about this exact same phenomenon in the Western media. Uh, we are seeing a serious drop in fertility. And what that means is that you're going to eventually have more elderly people as a percentage of society than young people. And what does that portend for economies and things like that? So this is like the kind of big question moving ahead. You know, are we all going to be, are we going to find a way to make this work? Or are we all going to just basically be devolving into, you know, nursing homes, you know, for taking care of, of hyper-aged societies? The, the, the answers, the, the questions are being asked, but they have not been answered. But Japan is, again, kind of at the head of the curve of this. And uh, so many intersections on that level, like immigration restrictions, yes. uh, lack of refugees being allowed in, yes. all these things, as well as not supporting working women, so not having more children born. Yes. It's well, Germany, Germany, by uh, I believe, is is at kind of at the forefront of making it easier for working women to have like access to daycare and things like that. And you know, it's really I think telling that Japan has not done much on that front. Abe, in his womenomics campaign, a campaign. Uh, was, you know, purporting to make strides. But I think on the ground, if you talk to actual uh, young mothers, working mothers, single mothers, you're probably not going to hear a lot of satisfaction on that front. No. Um, and Japan has been traditionally very reluctant to help out yeah. women in those ways, but yet happy to bash them for not having more kids. Yeah. So but it's funny. We've, we've seen from companies, uh, countries like in Scandinavia, when you have more women empowerment more yes. women represented in government and companies yes. and society, then fertility also goes up. It, it's funny when you embrace diversity, this is not some kind of destruction of, it's not a zero sum game. Um, it, it is it is a giving voices to people who are integral members of society. That That's what it is. And you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, And to me, it's very telling because you have, there's so few women in positions of power in Japan. Yeah. And hopefully that'll be changing soon. I hope uh, it's because there's no other way. It's, it's you're basically arguing to a guy to do something that's not in his best interest. Yeah. Even though it is, that's the funny thing. It is yeah. in his interest. It's of in all of our interests. Diversity is is an inclusion policies where you have more diverse and inclusive societies and companies. It's actually better for everybody. And we know that we've seen that many case studies. Anyway, now we've gone two minutes over. Wonderful. Wow. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for having Thank me on. Thank you I appreciate so it. much, Matt. That was a great conversation. So many points of interest, I think, in terms of having more sustainable societies and communities. And of course, that connects in many tangents, which we didn't talk about, but many tangents are connected in terms of the environment as well. But um, yeah, thank you so much. I'd love to have you on again sometime. Definitely. Good luck with all your projects. You too. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for joining. And uh, we didn't have any questions, but some positive comments. Great. So if you have any questions, please write them below. And uh, we'll try to respond off screen. <laughs> All nice. right. Uh, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. is interesting. 10.30 today and then 10 tomorrow. It's a, kind of a new time slot. Please join us at 10 tomorrow. We're talking with Jared Campion of Dream Drive. Uh, last week, we talked with a couple who's traveling around Japan in a camper van. And tomorrow, we're talking with Jared and his company, Retrofits Vans for Rentals, where you can sleep in the van as well. So a very interesting concept. 
Have a good day, everyone. Thank you so much, Matt. See ya. Bye. Thanks for joining today. What was your favorite part? Why don't you write a question or comment below and I'll reply or I'll get the guests to reply as well. I always appreciate the comments and questions. So if you have anything to say, make sure you write it below. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day. Take care.